Hey, Deserve Your Listeners, there is a movie that came out recently called The Invisible Man. And some of you have been asking for us to talk about it, primarily because it has a fair amount of psychology in it. And also, it gets into actual intimate partner violence or domestic violence and kind of this, the psychology behind it and one depiction of what it can look like. And so I thought we would talk about this movie because of that. And also because I think it's an interesting movie just to talk about. So I brought our favorite movie guys on the podcast, uh, Umberto and Colin. So this is a, a Colin with Colin episode. Thanks for joining us, guys. Uh, my name is Dr. Kirk Honda, and this is the Psychology in Seattle podcast, and I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Umberto? I am the muted Umberto because I had muted myself and just unmuted myself. So I actually uh, sell muting devices for people, and I am Umberto Castaneda. Uh, my name is Colin Miller. I live in Texas currently, and I operate cameras for billionaire genius playboys. That's very fancy. So, Invisible yes, Man. It's a high-paying job. Let's just start out with our ratings. Umberto, what's your rating? I was, I'm going eight on this one. Wow, you really liked yeah, it. Yeah, really enjoyed it. Uh, Colin, what would you give it? So, this movie hit right in the center of enjoying the way that it was created and questioning the logic behind a lot of the character choices. So for that reason, and because while I watched it, I felt myself very firmly smack dab in the middle of those two feelings, I'm giving it a five. Okay. Well, I'll round you out. I gave it a four out of 10. Wow. Um, I, I, this is great. This is very unusual. Yeah. <laughs> the, the world has flipped. Yeah. And I think Stacy would give it like a two out of 10 or something. She was, she was guffawing pretty much the entire movie. Um, so, uh, well, let's get into the themes of psychology and then we can get into like what we liked and disliked about the movie, but let's start with the psychology stuff first. So the first theme obviously is intimate partner violence or domestic violence. Um, what are your thoughts on that, Colin? Well, one of the things that um, struck me about their relationship is that we don't get to see it. So any nuance about um, what their family life was like together um, is a little bit of a mystery. Well, it's not a little bit. It's a total mystery other than what we hear. In that sense, it reminded me of that very old Hitchcock film, which is also a Daphne du Maurier book, uh, Rebecca, where we only get information about who Rebecca is. Um, and she looms over the house, um, you know, the De Winters like this specter. And that sort of was um, all I got from this guy that she was with. And I, I have to say that I sort of wanted the nuance. I know we're, we're talking about the, um, the psychology right now, but I, it, it struck me as a person, the, the man in question struck me as a character who, wanted possessions and wanted to own things. And Elizabeth Moss's character, or at least the way that she was portraying it, um, struck me as someone who was vulnerable to a person like that. And he obviously latched onto it and uh, started to drain her for all that she is. And that, that was, that was um, I think, one of the best things about the movie was actually the way that she portrayed it because you could feel her conflict, even though most of the time we're seeing her despise this person. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot of talk about that of just like, it was an interesting choice to not have what 
a lot of writers might do of like, well, you got to show the domestic violence. You got to show how horrific this guy is so that we can consider him the villain. We can understand her reactivity. But I find it interesting that we might have evolved as a society to a place where there's enough awareness out there where we don't need to see it. We, we know what that uh, life can look like. And uh, by especially right from the start where she's in bed, she's, you know, trying to sneak out of bed. She gets her go bag. She's sneaking out of the house. Like that could be a lot of different things, but I don't know about you, but I was like, Oh, obviously this is an intimate partner violence situation. And so on some level, it's a, it's good that we're in a society now where we don't necessarily need to see that to, to know what that might've been like, because we've seen enough depictions of it or we've heard uh, enough talk about it. So, yeah. Um, now I want to be clear because I've treated both victims and perpetrators of intimate partner violence. And although this is an accurate representation, it's just an accurate representation of one type. And the way that I might type this is that it's extremely high class uh, intimate partner violence, you know, similar to uh, big little lies and other kinds of depictions like that, where you just have the old, it's a, it's a trope by now. It's the ultra clean modern house with lots of cold, uh, you know, actually that other movie that we did with Anthony Hopkins was kind of like that, you know, the ultra clean modern house with concrete and, you know, these houses are probably like 50 to a hundred million dollar homes. And it, it, they're just so strange, you know, concoctions of reality, but they shoot really well, uh, I suppose. But anyway, um, so I would, I would characterize it as high class and I would characterize it as sadistic as well. But there are elements to it that we can point to that are a little bit more universal, like high control in the relationship. She talked about this a lot about, you know, at first he controlled this and then he was, you know, then he was controlling this and then he controlled who I saw and then he controlled what I wore and then he controlled what I thought. And although they don't go into detail on that, they, you know, they did talk about it a little bit. They also talked about the gaslighting aspect of, where the abusive person kind of gets inside of your, of your head. They also portrayed how no one believed her. Um, now they believed the intimate partner violence, but they didn't believe her. Now, by the way, we're going to spoil the whole movie, which by the way is spoiled by the trailer anyway. So Spoiler alert. And I don't agree with that. How so? I, I mean, I saw the trailer and I didn't want to see the movie because of the trailer. And I felt like the, I felt like I kind of got the point of the movie and, Pretty much what I was going to see, I had zero interest in seeing this from from the trailer. Uh, when I saw the movie, actually, there was I felt there was quite a bit there that was not spelled out, and uh, it didn't actually develop the way I thought it was going to develop from the trailer. So for me, it actually was a successful. Well, it was an unsuccessful trailer in that it didn't make me want to see the movie, but it didn't spoil the movie, which is my what I hate the most about trailers. Well, what happened in the movie that? you know, that you didn't think was going to happen. Like the well, twist. For one thing, like I disagree with Colin, if they had shown all of him being really abusive and being evil and manipulating all these things, then it would have spoiled the ability for the movie to actually make a second guess what was happening. Because as audience members, when, when she first starts having issues, like they don't go immediately to like, okay, no, okay, no, no something's clearly happening. 
they, they try to prepare you for, for like, well, it could be in her head or it's probably not in her head, but well, maybe it is. And even later when, when it tries to make it seem like, well, maybe it was the brother, but if we had set it up like really clearly from the start, like, no, this guy is a true psychopath, evil manipulator. Look just how we spent the 15 minutes just showing you all these scenes. Then there wouldn't be a mystery there. And I think that all that was not clear from the preview at all. Um, and I, and I actually, I re, the thing I enjoyed the most about the movie was not well developed in the preview, which is that that sense of like, yeah, what would you do? Like, how would you get folks to believe you? Like what? Because it's such a ridiculous thing. No one's, so granted, if you don't buy into the notion of the movie, well, then it's stupid. But if you buy into like, okay, this guy figured out how to be invisible. What the hell would you do? You'd throw paint, I guess. That's what you would do. And so, so I, I didn't get that from the preview enough. And I, yeah. I like when I mentioned earlier that I, I wanted more of the nuance, I don't necessarily think that I wanted scenes. I mean, I thought about that, maybe flashbacks here and there, but I really just would have liked more conversation between her and other characters, um, more conversation with her and the person that she was living with, the policeman, no, you don't. Um, conversation between her and her sister. I, I know that they happened, but the things that they discuss felt very surface level and I guess maybe in the context of a different script, it would have been more, what they would have said would have been more complicated. And we would have really gotten into the, the meat and potatoes of all of the terrible ways that she was in love with this guy. But, you know, he was an abusive monster. Except you're wrong, man. You're wrong. <laughs> no, no, no. Here, here's the thing. If this were a movie about the relation, like if this was a clever movie about abusive relationships, I'm with you. And maybe that's why I'm okay with a lot of these things, because this isn't that for me. This is a, a kind of a thriller movie, right? And right. and the fact is we needed to doubt her story. And granted, you're right, Kirk, if they did show that in the trailer, fine. But we needed to doubt her story a bit. And we needed to kind of be like, I mean, maybe she is, like a little bit of that. And, and so I felt like if, if they had given us too much insight, in, in, like we would have sided too much with her from the start. And then it would have been, a little less effective, but you know, that's coming from the perspective of not like how to show properly what the relationship is. I agree with you on all those fronts, except for the effect in the movie. I, I thought it would have been worse if they did that. Yeah. I think that it, it would have been really hard to have any kind of suspense because it's called the invisible man. You know what I mean? And so the only way you could have was to string out the beginning a little longer, which I will say I actually kind of liked the beginning a little bit. And, uh, oh, the yeah. other way they could have done it was to actually demonstrate to us that she was just seeing things at times, you know, like you, you put a, 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 her in a room and she's like, he's in here, he's in here. And then they do some kind of experiment to like search the room and, and they don't, they actually um, determine there's no one in here. And you're like, Oh, she is seeing things. No, I, I feel like, um, something that was really awesome about the movie that ties into the feeling that one gets after you leave an abusive relationship was the way that the cinematographer um, composed shots. Whereas, you know, there was a, it'll be in the kitchen or in a hallway and it'll, there'll be just enough space, you know, to the right or to the left or, or it'll pan just slightly over here. And even before the movie really cements itself that, yes, this scientist guy has created um, a suit for himself and allows himself, that allows him to be invisible. Um, 
you, you get the feeling and the terror of where are they? Could they be around? Um, where is he? Especially at the beginning before, you know, we get the fake reveal of his suicide. Um, but even after the, the suicide, I thought that was a really smart device, um, you know, in, in terms of her not letting go of her fear. Because I think that's that, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, Kirk, but I feel like even if that were to, to happen and he really were, would have died, um, she still would, I think, be afraid that he might still be around. Or, and that feeling wouldn't go away just because he passes away. And I know characters make comments like that, like he can't hurt you anymore, mm-hmm. but it's not that simple because the memories of all the ways that he scarred her, they're still very much alive. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when people come back from war, they know that they're not in a theater of war and they're in a constant state of terror. Our body adjusts to our circumstances. And when your body is in utter un, you know, danger and lack of safety for however long she was with him, uh, just because he died, that doesn't mean it goes away. Uh, but quick question before moving on into the rest of the psychology stuff. I guess it never occurred to me to ask this question because it just seems so absurd to, but do we believe that it might have been true that it was the brother all along and that the husband was, although an intimate partner, violence perpetrator, innocent of all the things that happened in the movie? No. Cause it was never, no, I didn't. it's not clear. They don't, they don't tell us that they don't show us anything. That's like, Oh, for sure. Because he could have said that surprise word coincidentally, I suppose, at the end. Uh, That was the only thing that really kind of tipped it where it was like, oh, he must be trying to say, oh, it was me and, you know, all along trying to scare her. But but I guess that is kind of interesting that because a lot of other movies would have been super overt about that reveal, Um, like they'd show flashbacks or something. So I guess in the end, it's like, yeah, could have been the brother the whole time. That doesn't mean that he wasn't an intimate partner violence perpetrator. Um, but I guess it would mean he didn't deserve to be murdered. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I, I was wondering if you'd found cases like that um, where, or if you'd heard of people who then went into um, domestic relationships and abused their um, significant other. Were there Are there cases where they practiced prior on brothers, sisters, um, you know, aunts, uncles, moms, dads, like, and cause I was thinking about that. I was like, well, maybe that was, he was one of his early puppets, this, this little brother. And he, there are comments that he makes. And I was like, Oh, I, I guess that would jive. I mean, it makes sense that an abuser would practice. Yeah, absolutely. And one can be terrorized by a sibling for sure. And it's something that's often, swept under the rug is like, ah, you know, sibling rivalry, whatever, but you can have massive amounts of trauma from those kinds of relationships. Now it's unclear because he could have been lying the whole time. He was lying to her uh, at other points Uh, was the brother. Who's the lawyer, um, you know, lying the whole time. Uh, uh, He, or was he controlled? I guess, I guess the, you know, this does add a layer of complexity to the movie that I didn't realize while I was watching of like, there's a lot of unanswered questions that are kind of interesting to ask. Was he a bad guy or was he being controlled or was he the ultimate villain? You know, it's, it's interesting. So the reason I, I, I couldn't buy that angle. Well, two, two parts. Cause you know, yeah, sure. The narrative could be, look, the brother kidnapped the, the brother, the, the other guy, put him in the cellar, bound him, then stole the tech 
and then he used it to uh, terrorize the girl. So that, that was definitely a possibility. Um, but the flip side is, then we should, then we would not be believing her narrative in the first place, right? Like, well, maybe he wasn't so terrifying that she would have to leave. But we saw, we did see the scene of him chasing her down, punching the window, all that stuff, right? And wasn't there evidence there? Because there was a, what was the thing? There, there was some evidence from that. Forget what the what the deal was. The video um, footage. You remember what it was? It was like something from the road there. Like a, she dropped her thing, and then the, oh yeah yeah yeah. Oh, so what was what the deal? Is. Like the brother it. knew that he had dropped that when she like yeah. that's kind of weird, right? So the brother wasn't there in that chase. No. So even if the brother kidnapped the brother and put him in the cellar. With, with the, was the guy as he's getting kidnapped. By the way, if you want to really make it convincing, grab this little piece that I left in my drawer and put it. Like, come on. That's well, and doesn't it diminish the opening then? Because one of my favorite parts, I think Kirk would echo this too, it, it's set up so well. Because all you get, like, the story is told visually based on everything she's planned, the way that she moves, the time of day, the way she treats the dog. Like, we know who this man is based on her acting plus again, the camera and the darkness and the tone. And so why would they do all that just to say, by the way, it was the brother, you know, not the man she was very clearly sleeping with. I, I don't know that. I don't know. I think they did that so that the final scene would have all that more ambiguity to it. You know, as you, yeah, no, and, and you're right. You're not wrong that there is ambiguity. I'm just, my, my opinion is, no, it was the dude. The brother was in on it, clearly. Probably, as you guys were saying, like through long, long-term manipulation in a way. Well, that's a good question. You know, was the brother an equal partner or was he being controlled? Like, you know, I guess, I guess we don't know. But anyway, getting back to uh, some of the psychology side of this before going on to our specifics of what we liked and disliked is the the fact that no one believed her now people again people believed her that she went through the intimate partner violence but they didn't believe her that there was an invisible man and so in some ways it emulates that experience of someone who's being gaslit being controlled and they're desperately trying to convince no you don't understand how controlling this guy is and in a way it emulates when uh which happens when people stalk their former partners it's like um i saw him i saw his car go by you know he did that because he knew i would see his car and he knew he was you know he's trying to intimidate me and if you've never been in a situation like that before you might hear that and be like well it probably wasn't him but even if it was him what's the big deal he just drove by with his car like what why are you worried well if you're in a stalking victim state those messages are like, I can get to you. I know where you're at. You'll never know if I'm just around the corner and, and I'm going to get you one way or the other. And I have a lot of energy that is pointing in the direction of, I want revenge and I want you to feel bad. And those kinds of notions, you know, just imagine you're at work and you know, you're skipping along and you feel like everything's fine. You come across this, you know, crumpled up note on the ground. And you pick it up and you unfurl it and you read it. And it doesn't have, it doesn't say who it is, but it says something like, I want to kill Colin because I hate him. You know what I mean? Like Colin aggravates me to such a degree. I want to throw him off a building. Well, if I had a nickel for every time I read that, (laughs) yeah, uh, you'd have two and a half nickels. And the, 
uh, just imagine how, um, how scary that would be. You'd be like, okay, which one of these fuckers is like this? You probably would want to quit, you know, cause it, it's like, I can't know who is, you know, who wrote that? How mad are they? Were they just joking? I mean, if you're anything like me, you know, you'd be in a constant state of terror looking over your shoulder, you know, and that's what these stalkers are doing. They're right, you know, right before illegality, right? Like punching someone in the face or stabbing someone that's crossing the line into a crime, just driving by the house. Hey, you know, I was just on my way to, it's all, or, um, Hey, I'm just calling you up and seeing how you're doing. Uh, stalkers know what they're doing in this situation, especially sadistic deniability. Right. And it almost is scarier if you've ever been in a situation like this, where you never know when the other shoe's going to drop you to some extent, you just rather them come at you and, you know, get into a tussle with you and get it over with just so you could be like, okay, I, it's now a quantifiable event where we had a violent moment and altercation and now it's over. I don't want five years of like looking over my shoulder and wondering, you know, not only are, when are they going to physically get me, but are they going to lie about me? Are they going to say that I sexually assaulted them five years ago and the cops will show up at my house? You know, these are things that if you've ever been in a situation like that, it's, it's absolutely terrifying, just terrifying. And so they depicted that well, but in a fantastical sense, you know, and that he's invisible and, and he can get her. The other part of this is that they also depicted how she had a trauma reaction, right? Like she couldn't go to the mailbox. And I thought that was a pretty good device because, you know, this, this, is a, this isn't a movie about trauma reactivity, right? So, um, but you have to depict it at least to some extent. And so they did that a little bit elegantly and economically by having that mailbox um, thing. The other thing that they did uh, a little bit of, again, it's not a movie about uh, intimate partner violence reactivity, but they did a little bit was how she was kind of beaten down in the beginning as she's being interviewed by people it, uh, or she's talking with her family members or something. You just get the sense like she's not quite sure of herself and she, you just get a sense like, and this is, I guess, Elizabeth Moss's, uh, Elizabeth Moss's ability as an actress, which I will say was, was really great. Uh, she, you really get the sense in the beginning of the movie of just how, long standing she's she's been broken down emotionally and and personality wise did you guys get that sense absolutely yeah, yeah. and i i think that elizabeth moss um if you like me have watched her on mad men then you're very attuned to like what her face does and something specific about that show because part of the not to change the episode into an episode of Mad Men, but it's about the male gaze and um, how it's been um, used in culture to perpetuate the profession, uh, the uh, repression of women. And um, so there are so many characters, mostly men who, but also some women that judge Elizabeth Moss's character who starts out season one as like the new girl in the office. She's like the fresh face and they're judging her appearance, everything from like, Oh, your legs are very nice. But like, actually your ears are a little mousy, you know, or like, like things about her face. And, and I, I, I liked that she was picked for this role. And I hope that I'm not being accidentally um, sexist when I say this, but like, she's a beautiful woman, but she's not a perfectly beautiful woman. She's like a woman that is attractive, but she's approachable. Um, and 
I thought that that added a nice layer because if they had added this, if they had cast like, for example, her co-star in um, Mad Men, um, Christina Hendricks, this like bombshell Venus of a woman who's like got the doll like face and the sexy voice, like I don't, it it would have been a different movie to me. And instead of capitalizing on like in the horror movie having this super hot girl um, running around in her under things, they had like a real person. And I think that that's, um, that's the way that she played it. She didn't go for like horror trope acting. She wasn't overtly screamy. She was like very poised, but also super vulnerable. Um, and I think it's hard for, um, to strike that balance of like an extremely vulnerable female character in a horror film, um, and not have it be problematic. But I, I think they, they did a really good job. Yeah, I agree. Uh, they they also, we were introduced to her at a point where the implication was that she had probably ran through in her head a million times the idea of leaving him and had probably rehearsed it, had probably gotten very close to doing it, probably gone to the fence 20 billion times, right? And so, like, we get that sense, like, okay, this isn't her first attempt, like, so she, so on the one hand, we get to her at a point in the story where she's already gained some strength, right? Because it takes so much strength to do something like that. However, we just from the trauma and everything, we see how like wounded she is and how, you know, from a naive notion, you would think, well, yeah, she's not strong because she can't even go out to the mailbox. But really, it's because it took so much to just get even to that point. Uh, but she has that other strength, right? Like she's able to say, to kind of stick to her truth in spite of like almost all evidence to the contrary, right? Because it would have been possible for her to get easily convinced, right? That like, man, there's some, I think I'm going insane. Clearly I'm going insane. But, uh, you know, just like that strength of like, no, I actually, I know my truth. I'm done being moon, or what is it, gaslit. I know what's up. That was, that was interesting too. And she did a really good job of conveying that and like being like, like internally conflicted, but also like projecting, like, no, I'm going to go in this direction. And I really appreciate all those subtleties that she adds to her acting. No question. I had a question for you, Kirk, about this, actually. So if you're in a situation, and I guess the you're in this circumstance would be the lay person, but you can also say from a therapist's perspective, if somebody does come to you and says, well, there, I, I am being stalked. Like, I, there is another mm-hmm. presence. And then they go into like, they started explaining, well, he's invisible, you know, he's literally here. Like, what is the response? Like, what do you say? That's great. That's a great question. Well, I get the coffee grounds and I just throw them around, you know, it's like, (laughs) let's find this fucker. Um, Right. Well, let's try it. it. Well, I would assume the person is delusional because that's really either they're lying or speaking a metaphor or they're delusional. Uh, I would have to investigate, you know, that distinction because some people might be talking in metaphor, um, but if they actually did believe that he was in the room. Now, another possibility, because he was presumably dead, and the other possibility is a cultural belief that ghosts can haunt you, right? And uh, the DSM actually delineates between uh, you know, a break from reality that that isn't culturally uh, typical or something that isn't culturally congruent. And if they're in a pocket of people that believes in ghosts, then it wouldn't uh, be culturally incongruent to believe that. 
a husband, an angry husband could come back from the dead and haunt you. So we wouldn't categorize that as delusional necessarily. Um, but yeah, I would assume it's delusional. Now I don't treat uh, psychotic people or delusional people very often. It's usually by mistake that they end up in my office. And so I would refer them <laughs> to a psychiatrist and someone who specializes, specializes in that. Um, having said that, um, if someone came to me and said, I feel like they're in the room with me, then I would absolutely value that and be like, yeah, I, I get that. I mean, when you've been broken down emotionally like that and you're in a constant state of terror, then um, it makes sense. In the same way, again, that a war, we, we are much more sympathetic to war vets, PTSD. That's why I keep bringing that up because somehow that uh, for some people it seems more legit and so we can imagine someone going to the war and being in the theater of war with death right next to them, uh, constant state of fear. They come back to the States. They're in the uh, aisle of the, you know, the cereal aisle, the, the trope where the soldier comes back, like in the Hurt Locker, and he's the, the, the bad Muzak is playing, and the wife is just talking about meaningless things, and he's just walking down the aisle. And then all of a sudden, there's something that reminds him, a smell, a noise, a memory, boom. He feels like he gets the sense that right around the corner is Al-Qaeda or the Taliban or something. And he freaks out and, you know, he has a massive amounts of anxiety, you know, runs out of the store. And then he comes to me and he's like, I, I had the sense like Al-Qaeda or someone was going to, uh, someone was going to start shooting up the place in the store. I, I can't prove that, but it felt that way to me. I would absolutely value that. It's a very normal trauma reaction. It's uh, right down the middle of, of the PTSD presentation. Um, now, I will say as a reminder, if any of you out there are unsafe with your partner or any other high control relationship, call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. That's 1-800-799-7233. Now, a lot of times podcasts and other news outlets will uh, bring out these numbers. I'm, I'm really recommending it because one of the things they depicted in this movie that wasn't exactly accurate, but could happen, is that she left all by herself. The vast majority of people who manage to leave, they have a team of support around them. Um, best case scenario, really. Because when you're alone and you're being abused like that, it's so hard to think straight. It's so hard to feel like you can be safe. I mean, she, she wanders off on that street and she's like, where's my sister? And her, her sister shows up and her sister doesn't even know why she's out there. She's like, wait, why are, oh, why are I hated that? Why are I, you meeting me out there? Uh, like what a terrible plan one. And, and two, like how would you leave the house if you were that afraid with such a, such a shaky scenario, you know, such a shaky uh, plan. And so especially when you have a cop who's a friend who could obviously be there with his cop car and his gun, you know, anyway. So I will say that, so when you call the national, the national domestic violence hotline or a local uh, domestic violence uh, outfit that they will find an advocate, someone who specializes, it's often free. They will work with you on whether or not you want to leave. And then when you decide to make, take the leap, then they will work with you on developing a plan well before you even indicate you're going to leave. You, you have a place to stay. You know exactly how you're going to leave. People show up to your house and say, you're coming with, you know, uh, hey, husband, you cannot talk with her right now. Um, 
and they're there. And when other people are around, uh, perpetrators tend to not uh, perpetrate. Uh, not always, but you know, it, it's a lot less likely that they're going to engage in that because they know that other people have power. And so uh, they have shelters, they have legal help. The, the typical situation, you cannot do this alone. So if you feel unsafe, call those advocates, get connected with them. They won't force you to leave. They won't call your spouse. It'll just be like a slow process. And it usually takes months, if not years to kind of build up to that eventual step. But you know, you, you deserve that. Do they um, have equipment to deal with invisible stalkers though? Absolutely. They have all sorts of uh, fire extinguishers and lots of coffee, especially here in Seattle, you know, lots <laughs> of, lots of coffee grounds. Um, in fact, Starbucks has a whole uh, wing of their productivity that is just for invisible men. Um, so the other angle here that I thought of was a depiction of a sadistic psychopath, which was a little bit of a disappointment because the perpetrators, these two guys, were so over the top psychopathic in that they clearly had no empathy and no remorse for their callous, harmful almost like weirdly targeting behavior of her, um, uh, getting her pregnant, all these kinds of things, uh, killing guards without any kind of remorse to that, that sort of thing. So many, so many policemen. Yeah. Hey, that's psychopaths for you. Right. And so it, that sort of person does exist. Hannibal Lecter's Ted <laughs> Bundy's, uh, not only psychopathic in that, you know, no remorse and, you know, criminal sort of propensities, but also sadistic. I mean, that if that if we do believe that the husband was behind this whole thing, he was sadistically trying to break her down. He wasn't just breaking her down to get her back. He he no. he wanted to he wanted to torture her before, during, and after this whole scenario. You know, yeah. he wants to get in that the final scene, you know, where they're at at the dinner, he is like he's like some kind of he's a Hannibal Lecter. Like he's like some kind of horrific devil from hell that yeah. now do these people exist yes maybe and they're geniuses they invent invisibility and a whole bunch yeah. of yeah um they but this is a very rare individual the 99.999 percent of the time you're going to see someone who uh, is perpetrating domestic violence who grew up with a lot of trauma themselves grew up a lot of violence themselves have a ton of attachment insecurity and a lot of emotional dysregulation, a lot of shooting themselves in the foot, and are uh, desperate for closeness, but don't have any way of getting that aside from high control because they believe they're not worth it. And so um, you'll see a lot more vulnerability in the typical perpetrator. Not that we have sympathy for their uh, abusive behavior, but I, I feel like in movies, they often will they just love to have sadistic psychopaths. They just love these, these like evil. I mean, it is interesting. I suppose. And you know, it, there's something to be said for that. Like, I mean, it um, would have been interesting. Maybe it would be even more interesting. I don't know. Like imagine if, if uh, she's there at the house with a cop and she hears, Hey, I'm in the room, but don't, don't panic. I'm not sadistic. I just want to talk. Well, but- <laughs> I mean, that scene is funny, but imagine at dinner, for example, yeah. And he starts to cry and he's just, and he, they did a little bit of that right when they first sit down to, to yeah. talk. He's like, you know, yeah, you, 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 
out of anyone, you can always get me flustered, you know, and that showed a little bit of vulnerability, but then he switches to like that cold, sadistic psychopathy of I'm a mastermind surprise, you know, and um, can you tell I didn't really like that turn, but, but imagine if they had done something different where he was just like, I, I'm sorry that of, of everything I've done in the past and I, I really want to get you back. But then, you know, she's a little reticent, so she doesn't really pour it on. And then he starts to get a little angry because, you know, she's pulling away. Like, that would be, I think that would be interesting. You know, I think that. It would be interesting. I, I still think, like, the, you know, because clearly there, there are people that are sadistic and maybe not in so grandiose ways with their, but, but uh, part, of, part of it to consider is <clears throat> the guy is, a mess meaning here he is like super rich and successful and he's thrown away i mean he's young and he's thrown away everything over this obsession and it's not just like an obsession as in like well i want her back over the obsession of torturing this person so he's thrown away his his company his fortune everything yeah it is an interesting question like what the hell did he want it appears like you just said, he didn't want her back. He wanted someone to torture, you know, yeah. someone to, I mean, the way he went about this, like in impregnating her and, you know, terrorizing her and giving her the impression like, yeah, it was me all along. And I want you to know that because I want you to be in a constant state of fear. Um, it's a very odd motivation that again is not typical at all of anyone, let alone perpetrators of domestic violence. No, I was I was confused about why um, there wasn't a switch wherever. Um, when, so we have once it's revealed that he's um, he's been uh, whatever he committed he not committed suicide. Sorry, he died by suicide. Um, but um, at that moment, he's trying to scare her, I guess. But then, why does he? not stop scaring her if he wants it, it. I don't understand the link between continuing to terrorize, making her even more afraid, killing people, and then sitting down at dinner at the end, trying to forge a kind of relationship. Or is he just, why scare her only to like nullify her and for more torture later. I, I didn't understand that. Right. But. Right. Exactly. That that's what I was uh, observing was like, Oh, all he wants to do is, is torture her, you know, to the, the typical domestic violence perpetrator, not always, but they're, they're often motivated by a normal desire to want closeness and security. They just go about it in this extremely destructive manner, destructive to others, but also self-destructive because no one wants to be around someone who's, torturous and controlling when you pull away. And so, yeah, it, it was like all he wanted to do was torture her. You know, we can imagine he was terrible while they were together. <laughs> and then, you know, while uh, we see the movie, he was terrible to her. But if his whole desire was to get her to have sympathy for, uh, for him and he's, you know, locked up downstairs, I don't know. It, but again, you know, it's a movie and what are you going to do? All right. Well, and, and it, you know, if you look at like a Ted Bundy or something, like clearly he went through episodes where he's like, you know, uh, 
well, I'm imagining, right? Like he's like, well, I kind of got away with it. So great. But then his compulsion is such that like, oh, I got to do this again. Um, and so similarly, I would imagine that like in some ways, the guy probably started with like, oh, she's going to leave me, huh? Okay. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Well, what's she going to do when I'm dead, right? But he's, you know, too narcissistic and stuff. So he's not really going to kill himself. He's going to go to this, play these mind games. But then he's too deep in it. And then he kind of gets off on the torture. And then he's like, yeah, yeah, you're, who's so, so strong now? Are you going to leave me now? And then finally, he thinks he's gotten away with it, right? Because his brother, he got his brother thrown under the bus and she's back. So now he gets to play dumb for a bit and kind of like resume things as if everything is great. So he gets his company back. He gets his girl back but I'm sure he's going to start torturing her again. Probably it's going to be worse now because he's probably, anyways, that's my thinking. And then unfortunately it doesn't last very long because she's onto him. Interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, the way you put that, Umberto, I'm convinced that that totally makes sense to me. All right, let's take a break and we get back. Uh, let's erase the fact that I disagreed with Umberto. And uh, <laughs> let's, let's talk about what we liked and disliked about the movie. What do you say, guys? Let's do it. All right, we're back from the break. So, Berto, if the invisible man with all of his sadistic psychopathy was to try to convince the listeners to become a patron of the podcast, what would he say? At first, he wouldn't say anything, right? So there'd be silence. And then you'd hear like, and then you'd hear like, hello, you, I'm in the room. And I'm going to like do weird stuff, like drop stuff. But if you become a patron... I'll leave you alone. Do it. <laughs> All right. So, Colin, let's go just likes. What, what, let's talk about only things we liked about the movie uh, beyond what we've already talked about. Any other things, Colin? Yeah. Um, I really enjoyed how um, set pieces were utilized to create mise-en-scene. So, um, we oh, talked about again, mise-en-scene. Can you remind me what that is? Um, it's like the feeling of the movie. It's sort of like tone, but um, right, right, right. usually it derives from architecture and lighting. And I've heard it um, before. I just forgot. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so I thought that that was, um, in terms of the construction of the film, it was used very well. I loved the house. I think that um, the whole movie could have maybe even been, it would have been a different movie entirely, but I could watch something set in that house. Um, even just hearing um, the waves crashing outside. Um, you feel so isolated. Maybe I'm more um, attuned to isolation in film, uh, given our coronaviral um, <laughs> situation. But um, that was really effective to me. And um, well, to I be fair, you only like... liked it because it reminded you of the lighthouse. <laughs> my favorite movie yes oh we need a crossover we'll do a and we'll put the invisible man in the lighthouse and then we'll, we'll remake the film um but yeah and i i think that um another thing that is great about the film is that it captures um it captures the not just by performance or by situation vulnerability but um the way that they composed shots, um, you know, and, and you learn about this a little bit if you do theater, where the way that you set people in the room, the way you stage a play will give one character more dominance over the other. One person will be more um, 
you know, empowered, I guess you could say. And um, they did that a lot with someone who wasn't even there. And um, so these scenes where like the invisible man is in the room and we don't even see him, the way that the camera is positioned, you feel vulnerable with Elizabeth Moss. You don't even have to see the motherfucker. You're you're already afraid. Um, So yeah, I really enjoyed that. Bruno, what'd you like? Yeah, I, I really enjoyed the mise-en-scene very much, too. <laughs> no, no, in, in all seriousness, I, I see what you're saying. I did get that sense of foreboding. They, you know, I, I honestly, like, listen, like I said, I thought I was walking, and maybe that's why I rated it so high, right? I thought I was walking into, like, just a normal horror paranormal thing or something. And, um, but they did those those moments well. It reminded me a little bit of the good parts of Shyamalan Ding Dong, M. Night Shyamalan, because, you know, he is really good at setting up those suspenseful scenes where it's kind of, you're just seeing a, a, a scene. There's not much happening, but yet you're like, oh God, oh God, oh God. And so I did get that, some of that sense. Yeah, absolutely. I loved the beginning of the movie, probably at the first third. I mean, not loved, but I was surprised at how, well it was directed and cameraed there'd be those scenes where they would you know real slow she's like walking through the the her friend's house at night and the camera would pan and they would leave a space for someone else in that field and you just get that sense of like he could be there but maybe but maybe he's not right and now Anyway, so I thought some of those early shots were really well done. Um, and that, that first scene in the house when she's trying to get out, they really lingered on some of those scenes where another director would be like, oh, let's move on. You know, let's, let's move forward with this. She, she's going to get out. We got to move on to the next scene. They really wanted to let that breathe, which um, I thought was, was pretty masterfully done. And they used the beginning template of the lighting to sort of create where she was emotionally throughout the film. Like, where, however Elizabeth Moss is lit or however the room is lit that she's in, it's sort of um, how comfortable or uncomfortable she is. And it gets more um, medicinal as the um, medicinal in the sense that it's like more fluorescent-y um, and harsh down the road. And, um, to, you know, when she's in the house with her friend, um, th- there's more warm lighting. It's softer in tone, um, prettier lights. Um, and I thought that that was, um, that was a nice motif. I liked the nuanced relationship with the sister. I thought that was an interesting thing that they did that was very oh, untropy. Yeah. Because in, in a typical movie like this, the sister would be very maternal and nice and understanding. But right away, you're, you get right when they... When he pick when she picks her up, you get the sense like, oh, they have some obvious ongoing tension and conflict between these two people, yeah. and they never really explained why. It was just it was just kind of how it is, and I thought I thought that was pretty interesting, and which is another element, I guess. Now that I come to think of it, that makes some people easy victims when they already come from isolation and conflict, mm-hmm. then they're easy to isolate and and to victimize. Oh, actually, so that's an interesting point because. You could, even though they didn't really go into this, you could imagine that there was some stress, some sort of stuff going on in their nuclear family as they were coming up, which caused their rift to begin with. That could be interesting. And uh, yeah, I totally picked up on that too, that it was, 
she, like basically you get the sense like, man, she can't even count on her sister. Right. And like her friend who's the cop is great, but as soon as it's threatening to his family, that, that avenue is closed too. So it, it helps isolate her further. By the way, I, I know we already said spoilers. That scene at the restaurant with the sister, that was a little shocking. Oh, that, that got me. I did not see the coming. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the music the, or the sound design of that. Yeah. I just thought, that was a I that was in my notes too. That was a, a pretty amazing scene. Having said that, I kept thinking, okay, he's invisible, but he's I not like but he's not like Superman, where like yeah. <laughs> like even when she put on the the suit at the end, she masterfully grabs his hand, grabs the knife, and then boom. Now, could it be done? Yeah, sure. It's not like impossible. It's not like Iron Man surviving uh a 20 G uh, stoppage when he lands on the ground, but it, it, it just felt like, oh, okay. You know, we're in that kind of world where I'll grant you guys that all day long. In fact, I was thinking, is there some sort of additional powers to this suit that we're not getting explained? Because like, because at first I'm like, why is this guy like a badass martial artist with super strength? Yeah. Right. And, and but it's, then I started thinking, maybe it's that the suit is like nanotech and it like enhances, but they never really explained that. So I was really, that was definitely odd. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to me, it, it's a little lazy because being invisible is a massive benefit when you're yeah. in a fight, but it's not that you can grab a, a strong guard's hand and direct the gun towards his knee and pull the trigger. Like that would be really hard to do. Right, like, right. Like well, just I mean, Im- I mean if, if you have that capability, then sure, it definitely helps you to be invisible, but you're already going to be like a special forces elite, you know, soldier or something. Right. To be invisible means that, you know, obviously they can't see you. And so you could sort of pick and choose when you got yeah. involved with someone. And so, but of course that doesn't make a very interesting scene, I suppose. But anyway, um, I like the music for the most part. I thought, I thought the music was a surprise. I thought the directing and the music was a surprise. I think Umberto kind of feels the same way in terms of what you were saying. It was like, oh, okay, this could have been a really typical type of movie, but you know, it seems to be kind of, you know, now that I think about it, I think this director was very inter- influenced by Denis Villeneuve of, uh, mm. you know, uh, Blade Runner 2049 uh, fame and other movies like that, where it kind of has that feel to it. Did, did it have that feel, uh, Colin? Yeah, I think that um, it was very reminiscent of like one of his earlier films, Enemy, with um, I think Jake Gyllenhaal. Yep, it's a pretty good film. Um, or Prisoners. What was that? Enemy. Oh yeah, en- oh, Enemy. Okay. And the, it's sort of hard to um, describe the plot of that film, but um, well, I liked I liked the sound design a lot. I think that um, Denny Villeneuve. I mean, like you brought up. Blade Runner 2049, I think that along with Roger Deakins is a uh, cinematography of creating, you know, this dystopia, um, the sound, just like with the original Blade Runner is, is one of the most important things about it. So his choices as a director um, in that movie take you there um, because every sound means something. But I think that where it differs for me, well, I, I guess I'll pose this as a question, not necessarily something I didn't like, while the music I thought was note perfect, not overly played, there were things I thought I would be hearing that I wasn't hearing. 
Now, I'm not like a noise scientist. I don't even know what the hell that would be. But I, I, was, I was thinking there would be things that were happening that I'm not seeing that I'd see, like, um, even by the, um, by the stove, like, when he turned the... Now, mind you, I don't know what every single oven sounds like when you operate it, but I didn't even hear, like, the knob turn. Or did we hear the knob turn? That's why I was like, I, I left the movie crazy. I'm like, was I not hearing things, or did the movie just not tell us these things? I, I, I didn't know. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't remember uh, if we saw anything there. I think that was one of those moments where we are still in the zone of, like, is he around or is he not? Oh, like, when, the, when, it, when it's really, like, the heat has been turned on on the... Yeah, yeah but it, that could have happened, correct me if I'm wrong, even if he hadn't messed with it. Like it could oh, have the just, breakfast burns, right? Yeah, it could have just started on fire. It was one of those questionable moments, like was it him or was it just an accident? And, and then there was that moment where he, where the knife, he pulls the knife off of the thing, but we never see the knife float away. So presumably the knife would have been floating there as they came back to the kitchen. So that right. felt like a bug to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Although maybe he's able to like, maybe it camouflages once it touches the suit or something. Maybe. Maybe. Now, do you know who was the writer, director, executive producer of this movie? I don't. Uh, Lee Whannell, who is Australian from the Saw franchise. Oh yeah. And the Insidious franchise. What? So this is a guy who comes from sort of classic, uh, torture porn and and horror he's breaking into legit films okay i mean i'm a huge saw fan but i will i'll gladly concede a one on all of them it's just i like them it's like my guilt guilty pleasures (laughs) have you seen those movies colin i have seen the first three and then randomly saw the most recent one because i I'm a sicko, so I took a date to see it. There's like a very recent Saw film. I think it was like last year. And I'm like, where, was, did, yeah. where did this come from? But anyway, we needed to just see some trash. I know where it comes from. You're hoping for that moment where they scare and then one of you like reaches over and you're like, oh no, yes. save me. <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, I guess. But I've I, seen I, the I did whole not like Insidious, but there are I've things. I've seen all of the Saw movies, I think, four times. I haven't seen any of them. I'm not interested in seeing them. <laughs> Every time a new one has come out in the last few years, I rewatch. I do a marathon with my friend Dean, uh, and we rewatch all of them to torture ourselves. It's our own torture porn. <laughs> so the other things I liked about this movie was that the invisibility was slightly plausible. Like it, it wasn't some hand wavy uh, chemical that's like turns you invisible. It was, you know, slightly plausible in that, what I uh, in what was implied was that this suit is made up of a bunch of cameras that can both uh, see what's behind you and then project it on the other side, which is uh, I think tech that is um, in development currently. Uh, obviously, it's it's not as good as that, but um, it seemed like a possible scenario that that you know could work, I suppose, on some level. So I, I kind of appreciated that. And, um, and of course, it's completely silent. Right. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be, you know, <laughs> <laughs> right. And as you move, nothing would rub against anything. <laughs> the other part of it while it was happening, and me and Stacy were both kind of yelling at the screen when he gets into that big fight with all the guards in the, in the hallway, uh, there are, uh, there's this, there's a gun sitting right next to Elizabeth Moss oh God. For, for probably like, no Get joke. Like 90 seconds. 
and she's just sitting there and she's obviously terrified and all she has to do is pick up the gun. And then, and I thought, well, maybe she's afraid of guns, but then after he's running down the hall, then she picks up the gun and I'm like, you're a victim blaming. I'm like, blamer. (laughs) but the whole time I'm like, grab the gun. You know, the other thing is, is, there's there's no cameras in the hospital hallway like i don't know i'm just uh as a person who kind of deals in that kind of work it's just like of course there's at least one camera in that hallway and it's like a prison hospital right right so there's okay seven i'm down to a seven (laughs) also i i felt like the script it could have been way worse is the thing like like that like that scene with with the with the frying pan that catches on fire they could have made that more overt that would have made it worse. They also could have shot it in a more typical way, which is Elizabeth Moss moves away from the, from the pan. And then we have a secondary shot where it's just on the stove, but they did it all in one shot where the camera was in the living room, looking into the kitchen. She's working on the pan and then she walks off screen. And then as a viewer, we're just sitting there looking at the kitchen with no one in it. And a, the, fr- the hearing, we hear the frying pan and then we see the fire like slowly develop. And then we see them run back in and they put it out. By the yeah. way, safety tip, it's a oil fire. Do not use water. You're just going to, you're just going to burn your house down. Yeah. Get that fire extinguisher, which is what the daughter did. And um, I turned to my wife cause I frequently do this cause um you know, if it ever happens, I'm just like, I don't want the house to be burned down because people are afraid to use a goddamn fire extinguisher. It's like, well, we don't want to ruin the kitchen. Yeah, no, it, fucking use the fire extinguisher, people, and make sure you have one where it counts under the sink and make sure it's renewed because they go bad over time. And sometimes you can only use them once. And so very important device to have in your house, by the way. <laughs> Um, Listen, so, I, I'm, so I'm Colin, to... do you have a fire extinguisher in your house that you know where it's at? No. And so get one and make sure it's the right kind because some are made for different things. You want to get the, the one that's made for all things. Um, and you want to drill your roommates on it too, because I don't want you to be burned down in a, in a terrible fire. Got to do it. You might want to like use them on, use the fire extinguisher on your roommates at night to remind them. <laughs> Or I can get a joke one that's filled with silly snakes. And when she tries to save herself, it'll just. Yeah. Oh, you should have used that. Oh, wait, you did try. Oh, wait. Oh, you know, I feel like growing up in the seventies, there was just a lot more fire safety talk and maybe that's what's inside of me or something. But I feel like in today's world, there's not a lot of fire safety talk. I don't know. Because now everything's made out of polyester, which I think is not flammable. Mm -hmm. So listen, I am glad you mentioned early on, that other movie we saw with Anthony Hopkins. What was that one called? Fracture. Fracture. Because, see, I was comparing that this one to that one mentally. Obviously, there are similarities, right? The genius, psycho, stalkery dude, blah, blah, blah. He's got this master plan. And I just felt like this one, maybe it's that this one didn't try to be quite as clever. Uh, but as a result, I, I, I wasn't rolling my eyes at, at, as much in this one as I was in that one. Cause in that one, like they try to make it really like, Oh, it's such an intricate plan. And then yet the whole time you're like, well, that's obvious. Well, why wouldn't you just do that? Well, why didn't you just do that? With this one, it was a little simpler of a plan. I'm just going to wear my invisible suit and go and torture this, <laughs> this lady. And so I guess I was more open to that. <laughs> okay. So going on to things we didn't like Colin, anything you haven't mentioned yet? 
well, we were just, I guess, sort of talking about it, but there were lots of times where the invisibility was not very plausible to me. Of course, I'm not um, anywhere near close to being an expert on the subject, but I was just thinking about the lighting. And, and I mentioned earlier, one of the things I loved about the movie was the lighting, in addition to the sound design. So to me, they were both very much things to focus on. You know, some movies uh, tell you like, you know, these are the visual or audible clues. Um, and there were times where I was thinking, wouldn't the light like bend a bit where this dude was standing? Like, would it really be totally invisible or would it be sort of like, would there be a shimmer every now and then? Like there was never even the, the hint of a shimmer. And I, I was like, damn, well, maybe I just don't know enough about like this technology that's in development, but that, that, that was a place that my brain went quite often. Yeah, totally. The The current uh, applications of this not only have shimmer, but you can absolutely see what they're trying to obscure. It just tends to make it a little less easy to see because it takes an image from behind and projects it to the other side. So if, if, it's, a sh- if it's a giant battleship or a cruiser or something, then one whole side of the ship just looks a little bit more water colored instead of being ship colored, if that makes any sense. But you obviously can see the goddamn thing, you know, it's, but, but we could imagine in a hundred years, um, the cameras being so responsive and so clear that it, you know, plausibly could work, especially if it detected your eyes and actually projected an image directly into your eyes while you moved in relation to the thing to obscure you. That would actually, maybe that's why there were so many cameras. I don't know. I'm just. I, I mean, I, I don't disagree that a, an even bigger challenge would have been to introduce a couple of gaps in the tech and that somehow um, the cleverness of the writing and of the bad guy in the movie still work around them. Of course, you would have had to reveal those gaps and maybe would have reduced the suspense as a result. Um, that said, I look at that one as. You know, if I go to watch a movie about space travel to Jupiter, I sort of have to concede that like, yep, we figured out how to stay up there for months and, or I have, you know, whatever, like, you know, whatever the movie is like, okay, yes, they, uh, they figured out how to time travel in the time machine, you know? So I I looked at that one that way. Like, okay, he's got an invisible suit. We'll concede, (laughs) you know? Colin just took a little break from the computer. And while he did that, he put the computer down, which gave us a visual feast um, of his outfit and what's in his room right now. So I just want to comment on it. I love your pants, by the way. Uh, there are their pajamas, clearly. Uh, no one would wear those outside of the house or even on a webcam for that, for that matter. <laughs> and you got Batman and Superman on there. Uh, and then your shirt is a, is a little cartoon of... Ray BB-8. And BB-8. Wait, what's, what's Ray and BB-8? What is that from? Yeah, who is that? <laughs> I've written those off. Other things that I, I didn't like about this this movie, I didn't actually like it when the guy ran up to the car and banged on the window. Because up until that point, I was like, wow, this is actually a pretty subtle movie. Like, Because I'd heard from previews that they don't show you know flashbacks to the... And I was like, that's pretty cool that they're going to leave it... We're, they're going to leave it to us to believe her story. And we're not going to see any evidence that shows that he was violent. We're just going to see him sleeping in bed. And then it's going to put us in the position of going like, 
well, is she telling the truth or is she kind of crazy? But when he runs up to that window and smashes through it with his, with his bare hand for no reason, I mean, anyone else would be like, even an abusive person potentially would, would run up to the car and be like, oh, you're okay. I was worried about you. Like, um, where are you going? You know, just kind of more curious, not like this violent, like, come back here, oh, like a monster. And I felt like, I don't know, it didn't, ter- it didn't terribly ruin the moment for me, but I just kind of wish they would have left that out because I, th- I think that would have made it more interesting. Well, to be fair, he was just trying to get her her wallet and he slipped at the last second and that's why he accidentally hit the window. Yeah. No, but I think you're touching on something, Kirk, that um, I think is definitely a flaw in the film, where, whereas if this were Spider-Man uh, Far From Home, it would be more okay because that movie is a particular style and um, a character like Mysterio can maybe do the bad guy thing and like revel in his evil deed getting pulled off because it's a, it's a fun, I don't want to Joel Schumacher myself and say, it's a comic book, but it's a different genre of film and it's meant to, this, it's not meant to be like this gut riching terror that is this film. And so when you have the villain who's by all accounts, a person that this girl at one point did choose to be with, mind you, maybe he was totally fake. Again, we've, I, I've heard on older episodes that sociopaths can be very charming and they can lure you in for sure. But um, that that need for the bad guy to find his evil deeds delicious. I'm not sure why it was there. Sure. We talked about the sadism aspect of it, but there was that extra element of like the bad guy monologue laughy bit, which I feel like some of the, because it was a movie, um, some of the directions of the script went and I, I didn't think it needed it because the, the coldness of his, um, of his demeanor the um, the way that they had com- like we have all the things that we talked about the way the shots were working the way the performances were working um, it wasn't necessary to me yeah I think it would have been a much more interesting and much more talked about movie I think if they went in that direction like when she's recounting her life with him um, they're like so I don't understand was he abusive and she's like well yeah he controlled everything I did he controlled my thoughts. And at that point, the sister's kind of looking at her like, well, I don't know. And then she says, uh, Elizabeth Moss says, and yeah, he was violent and, and other things. And, and then the sister's like, whoa, other things, like beyond violence, like what's beyond violence? You know, you, your mind kind of races in term, or imagines what that could be. Whereas imagine if the story, if she said, well, yeah, I mean, he, you know, sometimes we would get into a physical thing, but you don't understand. Like he was insidious in the way he would get in my head. And, you know, he broke me down emotionally. Um, I think that would have caused a lot more conversations because people would watch it and be like, I don't get it. Like, what was the big deal? Um, if, if there was no violence, how, you know, and then I think there would have been a lot more talk about like, no, no, no. Uh, violence is horrible, but it's, it's the other side. That's usually the, the more, terrifying part of it oh interesting so so imagine you had done that not only that so like she leaves you never see the guy come and run and hit the the window you actually don't see the guy gets in the car they drive off it's like what's the problem it's like same thing you know she i just couldn't deal with it anymore he was controlling everything he's controlling my thoughts and the sister's skeptical later when he shows up in his invisible suit he's not actually doing anything like physical 
he's just literally like, like every now and then whispers something like all mental torture. It makes it even harder for her. She's like, right. What has he done? Oh, he's just whispering things at me. Yeah. Yeah. Other things that I didn't like was the CGI breath when they're outside uh, in the cold. Uh, it's obviously computer generated breath. And uh, I, I think it's because all these movie uh, producers live in Los Angeles and they've never actually seen that in real life. <laughs> Whereas us, us in Seattle, it's like, you know, a, at least a common enough occurrence that we can tell the difference, you know, just like we have, you know, a hundred words for different types of rain. Uh, whereas people in LA, it's either raining or not. Uh, we also have an eye for what real breath looks like. And it was obviously, and I was like, Oh, obviously they are doing that because he, we're going to see his breath coming up. And then we saw his breath. Um, I also felt like they, sh- they should have, it was too long. It, this movie is over two hours long. Like we didn't need long. it to be, yeah, we didn't need to be that long. There's a whole sequence there where the phone is in the attic, like that whole thing. We didn't need any of that stuff. There were, there were a number of scenes like that where we just did not, we just didn't need it. And I, I, I blame Hollywood for not understanding the value of the editing machine. Why did we need the action sequence? That was something I was wondering, cause I know that, well, correct me if I'm wrong. I think the director um, made that movie upgrade um, it sort of came out around the time um, that Venom oh, was yeah. out. People thought that it was sort of, people would get the movies confused, not just because that guy sort of looks like Tom Hardy, but because there's like a thing controlling his action. Um, yeah. And so I think this is sort of where his roots are. And that that felt out of place because in no moment were you afraid for the policeman. You were, you were watching an action sequence. You weren't invested in like, in the way that... Um, like for example, in um, in Terminator, like the first Terminator, um, it's in the, from the beginning of the movie. Even though there are scary scenes, it's established this is like a John Carpenter action movie. So the big assault on the police station made sense tonally, and I guess that was a clash for me. You you needed something big enough for her to end up being okay at the end, because you know by by the point in that police station. everyone she was like a murderess and that was the end of her life right uh so you needed something big enough to where and that the cops saw to where it's like oh okay 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 i guess we got this wrong uh now as far as like you know we already talked about him being a ninja and all that stuff like i don't disagree it did make for a more entertaining scene though that was kind of fun to watch yeah um by the way that wasn't tom hardy in in that upgrade movie? No, um, oh. that was the guy from Prometheus. Um, oh, a fast yeah, um, J- no, not Logan fast Marshall fast. Green is his name, I believe. Oh, yeah. he, I think he does more theater, but he's in a few films here and there. Okay, I didn't see the movie, but I saw the previous, and I was pretty convinced it was. It's it pretty was. good. I mean, it's worth it if you like action movies that are creative. Um, it's not like it's not going to blow you away, but I think you'll enjoy it. Okay. I also thought it was a little silly that in the final scene when she's approaching her house with him and she's going to dinner, she has her powerful makeup on her, like, you know, her femme fatale lipstick and her, her hair was perfectly done for the first time in the movie. And I I don't know when I just saw that, I I think me and Stacy had been ridiculing the movie a lot by that point. And so I don't know, just, just felt very now budget wise, this movie made a ton of money and was extremely cheap to make seven million dollars 
which, what? which is like dirt cheap on today. That's like an in, that's like, that's cheap for an indie movie to, yeah. to some extent. It made 125 million. So wow, that is a producer's dream. So yeah. Lee, Lee Winnell is, he's got um, a lot of movies ahead of him given that track record. Yeah. You know, he, he made some investors a lot of money through this of course, movie. Then they'll do the usual mistake. All right, now imagine what I could do with $600 million. Yeah. Can I bring up the biggest thing that actually bothered me before yeah, we close out? Because um, I, and as a person whose profession is talking, you know, you're, you have to, well, maybe you don't, maybe there's forms of therapy where you don't talk at all, but you, I assume, talk to your clients and to your students. Um, it frustrated me that there were so many conversations between characters that didn't happen that I felt like should have happened. Like logical conversations, even though I know I, this may be me projecting like, well, of course, you know, you're sitting down in your chair and you not going through this stressful situation can like rationally as you're eating popcorn say, well, I would do that. Like we play that game when we're watching scary movies. Like, well, Jamie Lee Curtis, why didn't you grab that hanger again? Why did you put down the knife? You know, I get that. But there were just times where like the sister was got that weird email where she just opens the door and says, well, I fu- you know, your email is garbage or fuck you for saying what you were doing. And then she just like closes the door and Elizabeth, it's like the door was like a portal to another dimension because it's like Elizabeth's mom treated that as like, oh, well, okay, I guess I can't talk to my sister. I can't possibly pull out my phone and call her. I can't possibly like scream through the door. I didn't fucking send that email. It was my psychotic ex. Like, why didn't you have that conversation? Also, like, why don't you talk with, why did the policeman have to leave? Like, I get that his daughter got hit and like, that's a terrifying thing for a parent, but he leaves. He like immediately, I've got to get her out. I've got to get her out. I can't give you five minutes to explain that maybe we should set up a few cameras in this house. Well, not, not just that, because at that point, the possibility or the plausibility of an invisible man is like ridiculous, but there are many possibilities to an email like that. Uh, other than an invisible man, there's also the possibility that she accidentally hit the daughter. You know what I mean? So, um, so yeah, I totally agree with that. And the thing that I find, and I'm just speculating that happens on a lot of writers minds is they want us to like the hero and they, and they also like the hero because they're the writers of the movie, you know, cause they, they, they identify or like the hero and what they should do in these movies is, like with those two scenes, with the email and with the punching of the daughter. They could have had previous scenes that we saw where she is unreasonably hostile with her sister. And we as an audience go like, wow, you've got an issue with your sister. You're being, you're being kind of a dick to your sister right now. Then that would set up, okay, she is routinely unfair to her sister. And when this email comes, it's definitely a leap forward but the sister is like, this is just the final straw instead of what we are given the impression of uh, the sister is just like completely unreasonable. <laughs> like, like, okay, your, your sister's going through a pretty hard time right now. Her, you know, she ran away. Her, her, her husband died of suicide. Uh, maybe I should give her a break in this moment. <laughs> you know, she's now saying she doesn't remember the email. Okay. You know, let's hear this out. Um, they could have also had the Elizabeth Moss character 
get violent, maybe, you know, because of her trauma reactivity. The cop friend gets a little too close or makes a loud noise and Elizabeth Moss freaks out and turns around and just punches him like in the face. And then she's like, oh my God, I'm sorry. <laughs> or, or she's like, get away from me. And she, and she punches him or she goes to punch him. And then he's like, whoa, she can be violent sometimes. But writers hate to make a nuanced lead character. They want the character to be all good. And so when these reactions happen that they're trying to work into the story, they don't provide the background for it. That, that's, that's my explanation of why those kinds of, because that kind of thing happens all the time in movies. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you know, tell us why the emperor came back to life. You know, give us some background about that. I mean, for crying out loud. We should not um, speak of that. Yeah. H.G. Uh, Wells adapted. Uh, this book is adapted from the book. Ron Tomatoes, guys. Uh, what do you think, Colin? Well, it's pretty divisive. So I'm going to go 56. What do you think, Birdo? Uh, I think most people are going to agree with me and go like 80, 80, 84. It, 91 on Ron Tomatoes. <laughs> oh, hell yeah, Umberto. You win this round. Yeah, I guess I'm a sheep. <laughs> Or no, no, not at all. me and Colin are stupid because the critics love this movie. Okay, audience score. Colin, what do you think? Audience score, oh, maybe I should have switched to that. I'm going to go with 81. Berto, what do you think? Well, it was well-liked and made a lot of money, so I'm going to stick to uh, 80. 88. Okay. I think okay. Colin won that one. Um, yeah, this is one of the highest rated movies of the past year. I mean, 91 Rotten Tomatoes, 88 audience. Uh, That's surprising to me, honestly. Uh, And I I read the reviews to try to see if they were more nuanced, but no, there are people that are just like, this is amazing. The only explanation I can have is that, again, it's well-directed. You know, it's a pretty fancy, artsy, you know, non-cheesy depiction. And Elizabeth Moss is amazing. I, I think yes. Elizabeth yeah. Moss is so good and people love her so much that I think that's what bumps it up. That's the only thing I can think of. I mean, as we've been talking, there are things that, that you both brought up that make me remember that. Okay. Yeah. Like, I, I guess what I was wondering is, I don't know why it didn't bother me as much because those, a lot of the issues you're bringing up normally do irritate me when I'm watching a movie, right? I'm like, Oh, that's so stupid or whatever. But in this case, maybe it's that I had really low expectations or maybe it's that Elizabeth Moss was enough for me to just like watch her reactions and stuff like that. And maybe the cinematography or something. In general, my experience of it was that I really walked out going like, wow, that was surprisingly enjoyable, right? Um, I do think eight was probably too high given, you know, as we've been talking, I'm like, okay, fine. But yeah. Yeah, I like it when I ruin things for you. You guys brought me down. So, you know, originally this was supposed to be part of a new franchise like the MCU, right? This is supposed to be the the Mummy and Dracula and... Wait, what? Yeah. Oh, you didn't know this? I didn't know this. Yeah. So, you know, we had the MCU and then DC tries to come out with its uh, copy of MCU. And then... This is like the Tom Cruise Mummy movie was going to be part of this? So this is Universal, I believe. And they, it was, it was going to be called uh, the dark universe and Whoa. it was going to have Dracula mummy and the invisible man was, I think supposed to be a good guy. Um, Dr. Jekyll, oh. Mr. Hyde, all, all these kinds of things. And Johnny Depp was supposed to play the invisible man. Um, oh, but Dracula untold, which I don't, I don't even remember coming out in the theaters. And of course the mummy, which was 
critically and uh, universally panned by everyone, completely put an end to the franchise. Oh. Just, you know, how shitty the mummy was to everyone. It was like, I didn't even think it was that bad. I mean, I, I probably gave it like a four or five out of 10. Um, it definitely didn't live up to the hype, but I didn't think it was just like the worst movie of all time. Yeah, but I mean, like, who needs a, a cinematic universe for these things? That's. <laughs> but they were jealous of just the money-making machine that MCU has, has been, right? And so they're trying But it's to- just like those, those characters are so quaint. Like, I guess they'd have to approach it in a very different way. And was there, am I crazy? Wasn't there an Invisible Man with uh, Kevin Bacon? Right. Hollow Man Hollow 2000 Man. with uh, oh, Elizabeth. That, but that wasn't like the H.G. Wells story? It was. I mean, it was, oh, it, was. Okay. it was related, you know what I mean? Okay. Um, and Elizabeth Shue was the character. Oh, yeah, yeah. And there was also a version in 1933, if I'm not mistaken, okay. way, back, way back in the day. Um, I did not know they were trying to franchise this, this guy. But this one is like stands alone, right? So like it's not yeah. really. Yeah. Yeah, I think the original script or producers were thinking that it was going to be like the invisible man was going to be some kind of cool character, like a, an, uh, a villainized hero, like a Batman character, you know, I don't know who knows. All right. So guys, what's the final word on the invisible man, Colin? I think that the movie does a great job of telling its story, especially visually I don't know that the story is all that great. And I think that if you are intrigued by the visuals and the, the tones of the film, which are struck very well, um, you'll enjoy the ride. Um, and uh, I sort of, it reminded me of um, when I first played through um, Batman Arkham Knight by Rocksteady, where like the scenes are great and the way that you feel in the scenes is great and you're absolutely transported. But then when you think about the story, it doesn't hold up and it's a little weak. And I guess that um, I was in conflict while I was watching it um, in that regard. So I'd like to watch it again. I'm sorry. Arkham Knight is the second one. Well, it depends on where you fall because there was, Arkham's Asylum, Arkham City, and then another company did oh. Arkham Origins, and then Rocksteady came back and did Knight. Oh, I don't um, think I played Arkham Knight at all then, because I played Arkham well, the first two. Well, there's like these silly... Okay, so Arkham, the twist, this is a Batman spoiler. So Wait, no, 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 don't, no, because I'll probably play it. I'll oh, probably okay. Play. Okay, okay, well, there, there, then I won't even go into it, but there's a mystery of a character, um, and blah, 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 um, I, it reminded me of that playthrough. But you did love um, Arkham Asylum and Arkham City. Oh, for sure. Okay, got it. Yeah, got I also it. loved Arkham Knight, but only the experience of the storytelling, not the actual story itself. Um, your scenes can be well-constructed, um, and the construction, it doesn't hold anything. It's like you build this beautiful exterior of this house. You're like, God, I can't wait to, to walk inside. I can't imagine you know, what the, how cool the TV is going to be and how comfortable the couch is going to be. And then it's just like empty. And there's like a lady standing there and she has a pamphlet and she's like, what would you like to fill this house with? Like Animal Crossing or something. But um, the final, final word, I guess that was uh, my long winded way of saying that I think that it's a great horror film, but I feel like it could have with a few small tweaks been a great psychological thriller. Apparently everyone thought it was a great psychological thriller. 
Um, but it could have been better for you and me, Colin, who have better taste than everyone else. <laughs> okay. Okay. Look, my final word is um, I, I've been, I've agreed with a lot of the criticisms. And so I brought it down to a seven. Um, I did really enjoy it. I didn't think of it as a very brainy movie um, from that perspective. I wasn't judging it in, in, in that sense. I was thinking more along the lines of a horror movie. You're right. But as far as horror movies go, it was pretty good because normally horror yeah. movies are pretty shitty. So, yeah. So I liked it. Stand by it. Maybe not as much as I initially said, but there you go. All right. Thanks for joining us, Colin, in all of our quarantine glory um, and uh, pajamas. I'll show you <laughs> my my pajamas. Um <laughs> Ooh, nice yoga pose. <laughs> Thanks. And everyone out there, uh, revel in your pajamas and please take care of yourself. Colin and Alberto, why should people take care of themselves? Because they deserve it. I was going to try and find a way to do like a weird sound. Make like it. I'm, do the weird like sound. Deserve it. <laughs> <laughs>